0: Welcome back to the Veterinary Public Health Podcast. I'm Kate, with me is Nick. Uh, Today's episode is going to be all about avian influenza, maybe more commonly known as bird flu. So I think there's been a lot in the media lately about infectious diseases in general in the context of the current coronavirus pandemic, but something that's flown under the radar a little bit is that there's been some minor outbreaks of avian influenza in Australia this year as well. So today we're going to talk a little bit about these things that have been happening recently, a bit about what avian influenza is, how it's transmitted, why it's important, and some of the things that we can do about avian influenza.
1: Thanks, Kate. Well, yeah, as you just heard, the latest outbreak of avian influenza has actually affected a couple of free-range egg farms around uh, Victoria near Geelong. And at the time of recording this Uh, podcast, there's been at least 280,000 birds culled and buried as a result of the detection of highly pathogenic avian influenza. So uh, whilst this pales in comparison to the nearly 19 million birds that have been culled around the world this year, uh, the virus itself isn't technically killing too many of those, it's the response to that and that's mainly because it's so important to try and contain it and reduce the spread, the cost of both animal and human health and the trade implications it entails.
0: So um, you say that most, most of these birds are not actually dying of the flu, but 19 million birds around the world have been culled this year due to avian influenza. And that sounds like it's pretty serious. So why, why are we not hearing much about this in the, in the media like we did when we had the avian influenza outbreak in 2007?
1: mm mm. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting because not all bird flus are made the same. Some, like the Spanish flu that I'm sure everyone's heard of from 1918, uh, which is believed to have originated from a highly pathogenic avian influenza, killed 50 million people. Uh, even though this current outbreak has been classed as a highly pathogenic avian influenza, we probably sort of need to take half a step back to get an appreciation for how it's a bit different to past viruses and uh, get a real perspective as to why avian influenza is a bit of a challenge from a public health perspective.
0: Yeah, so the, the Spanish flu of 1918, even though it's more than 100 years ago, I think it's got quite a bit more publicity in the media than these current flu outbreaks because it's really the last big human pandemic that we're aware of. So um, I guess in order to understand why bird flu is so challenging, we need to talk a bit of virology, a bit about the structure of the bird flu virus.
1: Great. So uh, let's talk about viruses with the hosts. They can generally be split into generalists or specialists. So generalists are viruses like the influenza virus that uh, is able to infect and adapt to multiple different host species, whereas specialists are very particular with their host species. Um, In fact, 75% of emerging uh, human diseases are of what we call zoonotic origin. So these are diseases that we've received from animals and they could be virus, bacteria, fungus, whatever. But the common theme is that they've been able to shift and adapt So be like a generalist.
0: Yeah, so we're saying that all of these diseases that are of zoonotic origin are examples of generalist pathogens that have the ability to potentially infect multiple different host species, and the influenza virus is one of those. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the structure of the influenza virus, which gives it the ability to mutate and to infect different types of hosts.
1: Yeah, so for a start, it's an RNA virus.
0: Yeah, so that when we say RNA, we mean the genetic material of the virus, which is usually RNA or DNA. The influenza virus is an example of an RNA virus.
1: Yeah, and there's antigens on its surface, so they're the little surface proteins, and they can be H antigens and N antigens that we see.
0: So these antigens they have they have functions for the virus itself and they're also the marker that our immune systems uses to identify when it encounters a flu virus that that virus is in fact a flu virus. When we say H and N antigens where the H is referring to hemagglutinin the name of that actually means that it causes red cells to bind together but for the virus It's actually a glycoprotein that allows the virus to bind to a host cell and that then facilitates the entry of the virus into the cell, which is how that virus is pathogenic. If we say that it's pathogenic, what we mean is that that is the ability of an organism such as a virus or it could be another pathogen like a bacteria to cause disease in the host we have lots of bacteria on our bodies animals out in the environment have lots of bacteria on their bodies that do not cause them to become sick and these would be examples of common cells or bacteria that we carry around that don't make us sick to in order to call it a pathogen it has to have the ability to cause disease yeah so the hemagglutinin antigen helps this virus to be pathogenic So the other antigen on the influenza virus that we commonly talk about is the N or neuraminidase antigen and the function of this antigen is to aid in the release of new viral particles from an infected cell which allows them to continue to spread and infect other cells in the body or to spread to another host. This is really key in the virus's ability to reproduce and spread and it's actually something that we can target with a medication called oseltamivir or Tamiflu which you might have seen used in humans. It's actually not particularly effective in preventing transmission of the flu or shortening the duration of illness by any particularly significant amount. But the mechanism by which it works, I think, is useful to talk about to understand what neuraminidase does. Because if we use oseltamivir, what it does is it inactivates that neuraminidase antigen, and instead of the virus particles being able to be released into the body to go and infect other cells they actually all aggregate on the cell surface and they can't spread
1: yeah that's really cool and um basically if you've heard of influenza strains being called by their h and n so h1n1 for example that's describing the h and n proteins that we've just talked about and that is what gives it its strain characteristics but uh realistically There are so many subtypes within this, and even though there's only 16 H and 9 N antigens, uh, which, if you do the math, gives us 144 different strains, the combinations thereof, that doesn't give us the full story because what makes this uh, virus so adaptable is its ability to mutate and undergo things like antigenic drift and shift.
0: Yeah, so I think what you're saying then Nick, is that um, the H and the N subtype of the flu refers to the antigens, but if we look at the actual genetic material, the RNA of the virus, there can be quite a lot more than those 144 possible strains.
1: Yeah, that's so, it.
0: So let's talk a little bit about antigenic drift and shift then, which is really what makes the flu so adaptable. And these both relate to the ability of the genetic material of the virus to change so, antigenic drift occurs when there's a small change in the genetic material of the influenza virus that results in a new strain of virus that's just a little bit different from the preceding strain. And if somebody, a person or an animal, has been infected with that original virus and they have survived that infection and developed immunity, there's usually going to be some cross-immunity between that old virus and the new virus. And the same applies if that person, for example, had been immunised against a strain of flu that is quite similar to what the new strain that has been drifted into. Is like. We can contrast that to antigenic shift which is a much more abrupt and significant change in the genome of the influenza virus that results in a very very different virus to what is out in the community and there may be little or no immunity to that and often these when they occur these types of outbreaks in humans they're often of zoonotic origin a good example of that that people might remember is the 2009 swine flu pandemic. Uh, some of these animal origin viruses can have combinations that of the antigens that are so different from the same subtype in humans that people might not have immunity to the new virus. So even if it's a H1N1 virus and you've previously been infected with or immunised against a different strain of H1N1, if one comes across from an, an animal origin, the genetic material might be so different that you wouldn't have cross-immunity to that so they they can be antigenically the same but they can be genomically quite different or they could be completely antigenically different to anything that's out there in the human population
1: yeah cool so because there's just so many different variations and it gets all confusing we try and keep it simple and we just say there's high pathogenic avian influenza and low pathogenicity avian influenza and that sort of just gives us an idea as to how much disease it's likely to cause in a flock if it infects it so there are three criteria that classify it as highly pathogenic avian influenza and it just needs one of these so a greater than 75 percent mortality in infected birds so for every uh, 100 birds it infects it'll kill 75 a greater than 1.2 p index which is Uh, the number of birds that develop symptoms for every case of avian influenza. And it's a similar concept to the R0, which people may have heard of from the coronavirus R0 value, where for every case that gets infected, how many people do they spread it to? Now, the difference here is that that includes asymptomatic cases, so people that don't show symptoms, whereas in the P index, that is just looking at how many are showing symptoms not the asymptomatic ones and then yeah so the third criteria is if it's a h5 or a h7 strain so if you remember we were talking about those h proteins so the h5 and h7 strains are just the greatest risk of mutating and being having that zoonotic potential to infect us
0: So I guess when we look at this whole HPAI, highly pathogenic avian influenza group, we can see that the viruses within this group are quite heterogeneic because they can be classified as highly pathogenic for reasons that are independent of each other. And it could be that the virus causes a lot of mortality in birds or that it spreads rapidly within a flock of birds or that there's a high risk of transmission zoonotically to humans, or it could be any combination of these factors.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So I guess the next thing to talk about is why we continue to get outbreaks of avian influenza.
1: Mm. So aside from the fact that it mutates and stuff, well, it's got a what we call a reservoir. So a, a group of animals that it naturally occurs in that don't show very many symptoms. And and in avian influenza case, it's it's the waterfowl reservoir. So um, birds like ducks and geese and swans and all those other water birds, which often migrate uh, and have migratory patterns around the world, it often doesn't show signs or symptoms in any of these. And it'll just spread in their poo. And this is what's called an adapted host. So the virus has adapted so well to this host that it's able to survive and replicate and spread around the world without showing symptoms except for the fact that it will show symptoms in its semi-adapted and non-adapted hosts
0: so i guess what we're saying there is that um the there are lots of waterfowl that are not very susceptible to avian influenza and they can just carry it around and then other birds can catch it from them so In terms of looking at birds that are sick and how we might identify that they have avian influenza, the clinical signs can actually vary a lot from these fairly asymptomatic carriers and partially adapted birds to birds being very, very sick and suddenly dying. And it depends a bit on the strain of the influenza virus as well. The less pathogenic strains tend to cause more respiratory symptoms. So these birds might have respiratory distress or you might see coughing or sneezing or difficulty breathing and in the more severe cases you'll see that there's more gastrointestinal symptoms so these birds will tend to have diarrhea they'll go off their food and often they can suddenly drop dead There is, from a a farmer's perspective as well, they'll notice that there'll be a real drop-off in the feed intake and water intake of the birds and of egg production, if that's what they're being kept for. And the birds will just look kind of unwell and unkempt. They might have ruffled feathers. They can look a bit dopey. Often they'll have their eyes closed. And sometimes we can see that the comb of the bird as well might look a bit abnormal. Is that right, Nick?
1: Yeah, and it's it's a really funny virus in that When it's spreading in those asymptomatic waterfowl its primary mode of spread and it's signs that it shows in those low symptom birds are mainly gastrointestinal so it'll spread by the poo and they won't show many respiratory signs but then as soon as it ticks up a little bit in its pathogenicity it will start showing respiratory signs and then when it gets to that really highly pathogenic stage It'll go full blown, both respiratory and gastrointestinal, and a bird, a whole shed can be dead in 24 to 48 hours. It's crazy.
0: So, Nick, maybe for other vets out there, we can talk a little bit about if you're looking at a sick bird and you think it might have avian influenza, some differential diagnoses that you might like to consider.
1: Yeah, so like Newcastle disease or acute foul cholera, other septic diseases, infectious laryngeal tracheitis and poisonings, and cellulitis of the wattle, Um, all those things come on into your differentials, and when you do see any of those, it's a, they're generally reportable diseases, so you send a sample in and do your due diligence.
0: So... In, in the way that this relates to humans, there are specific populations that are really at risk of zoonotic disease here, which is um, people who would be in frequent contact with birds, particularly in areas where there is poor sanitation. And we see, if you look at patterns of avian influenza outbreaks worldwide and uh, and episodes of zoonotic transmission, they do commonly occur in areas where people might keep a lot of backyard chickens and there can be some poor sanitation. And I guess here it's worth mentioning too that theoretically there's the potential for reverse zoonosis, where if there's a densely populated group of humans around a group of fowl, that there, there's potential here for the human flu-adapted virus to become a, a strain that would infect the birds as well. But um, other than zoonotic potential, what are some reasons why we should be concerned about avian influenza? Mm,
1: so the obvious one first up is animal welfare. And that's just purely because so many birds are dying and getting sick around the world every year. The environmental impact as well plays a part because for all these birds that we cull, we have to find out, figure out what we're actually doing with those. So with outbreaks happening more frequently, where do we either bury or burn or what, what we actually do with, with those birds.
0: Yeah, so it generates quite a large amount of waste, doesn't it, when you need to cull a significant number of birds. Yeah,
1: and then with that comes the economic impact. So it's not just the direct cost of not having those birds, but it's the flow-on effect in trade implications and in a very vertically integrated system.
0: Yeah, so what, what do you mean there by a vertically integrated system?
1: Oftentimes, when we're, we're looking at a farming system, these farming systems where there's birds that go in and go out and it's, it's it moves like machinery, when you take one cog out of the wheel, then it has flow-on effects above and below the chain. So downstream is the consumers not being able to get the eggs, but upstream, it's the fact that there's all those layer birds the pullets that are growing up if they're cold then you have to go even further back
0: so we're we're affecting not just an individual group of birds but we might be affecting a whole supply chain which obviously has wider impact
1: exactly thank you
0: (laughs) so there is also there's a wider economic and societal impact of bird flu and i think that we can we can compare and contrast some of these impacts with things that people might be more familiar with from the coronavirus pandemic. I think we've seen that there's been a really large impact on society as a whole in terms of people's lifestyles, employment, security of income, people's living arrangements, lots of things other than individual people becoming sick. And as we just sort of Touched on. There's a lot more to bird flu than birds becoming sick and having to cull a number of birds to try and control an outbreak.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So I guess one of the the main strategies that we have in fighting the human influenza viruses is to vaccinate people against the flu. Is vaccinating birds an option?
1: Y- yes and no. Am <laughs> <laughs> yes. I asked a difficult question? Yeah. Well, okay. there's there's pros and cons of vaccinating. To be honest, with Vax- for a start, vaccinating is difficult. You need to have two doses of, vac- of a vaccine five to seven weeks apart, and you need to inject that into every bird. And if you've got a shed of twenty thousand birds, it's a logistical nightmare.
0: So what you're saying is, it's not something that we can just put into the food or the water and vaccinate all the birds. No,
1: it's it's a little lo- a little bit more complicated than that. And um, well, I guess we'll just go into the cons first for vaccinating vaccinated birds can still catch and shed the virus, so they can still pass it on to others. And the transmission can actually occur from vaccinated birds that are not showing any symptoms, even if they have caught the virus and spread as asymptomatic spreaders.
0: And that could even happen into uh, into a wild bird population, which then means that the, there continues to be a reservoir of the virus in the environment. Is that right? Yeah,
1: exactly. And so if you did have a vaccinating program, you'd have to have what's called sentinel birds, so unvaccinated birds, so that if they did catch the virus, they would show signs, or what's called a diva program, which is where you only give them a vaccine that has parts of the virus. And so when you test their blood to see if there's other parts of the virus, you know that they've only been exposed to a part of the virus versus the whole virus.
0: So with that DIVA program, what you mean is that we need to be able to differentiate between a bird that has natural immunity because it's been infected versus a bird that has been vaccinated against the flu so that we can try and pick up outbreaks.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then... Finally, in addition to having to inject every bird, you actually need to produce the vaccine. So producing a vaccine, as you know, takes, takes quite a while. And the other major problem with vaccinating is that whilst it's theoretically possible for a wild virus to actually take DNA and recombine, or RNA, I should say, and recombine with the vaccine to make new strains and therefore spread to new birds as well?
0: So I guess there are some pros for vaccination. We can increase the resistance of birds to infection with avian influenza, despite the fact that some still can catch and shed the virus. There will be some birds that will become resistant to the flu and the severity of symptoms will be a lot lower and the, the rate of death amongst infected birds will be lower as well. It does decrease the spread of the virus compared to not vaccinating, which can help um, to minimise the exponential spread of an outbreak as well as reducing exposure to humans and potential zoonotic transmission.
1: Mm-hmm. With all that said, you'd sort of say, well, why why would we even... Want to vaccinate?
0: Yeah, so I guess there's there's a lot that goes into deciding whether or not to vaccinate and in Australia it's really the government which will set a requirement on whether or not vaccination for avian influenza is necessary. At the moment we don't routinely vaccinate, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so the policy from uh, the government is that we have a stamp out policy which means we won't vaccinate and we'll just cull all birds that we think are infected or a shed that has been infected and not decontaminated so I guess then
0: um, what we should talk about is that there are some things that we can do other than vaccination to prevent outbreaks from occurring if vaccination is not going to be the mainstay here
1: yeah there's definitely other things that we can do vaccinating is not our only tool in the toolbox and comes also down to the current circumstances that that country finds itself in so whether they have a lot of backyard chickens, whether they've got a good quarantine and biosecurity program.
0: There are some methods other than vaccination that we can use to prevent outbreaks occurring. Vaccination is not necessarily the key player here like it is in the human flu. And really having good preventative strategies good biosecurity practices that are that industries are compliant with and c- reporting systems through the community, through farmers and through vets and then on-site screening in, um, in larger kind of poultry farms will enable us to pick up and stamp on any outbreaks early rather than allowing them to spread.
1: Mm, and there's a, even something called sentinel birds where there are birds sort of dotted around Australia in high-risk areas where we may be getting migratory waterfowl flying overhead, passing on high pathogenic avian influenza, and we just routinely test those birds to see what's the virus looking like this season.
0: So that's an example of one of the ways that we can work out whether or not there's avian influenza out there and how serious a threat that particular strain might be to the um to the chicken farming industry. Yeah. Additionally, it is interesting that there's been some studies that show if there's a higher prevalence of people keeping backyard chickens, that actually means that you get more outbreaks of highly pathogenic avian influenza. In one of the studies, a 25% increase in backyard chickens resulted in a 7% increased risk of HPAI outbreaks in that particular region. So the prevalence of other birds around the farms is something that is worth considering as well. Mm, mm. So let's take the scenario where we've got an outbreak. What sorts of things can we do to try and control that?
1: Yeah so first and foremost it's stamping out. So culling all the birds in a infected shed and decontaminating that shed. There's also a what's called a control zone and a restricted zone so a restricted zone would be the shed and the immediate surrounds say one to three kilometers and a control zone would be an even bigger zone around that between five and twenty kilometers let's say and that would have different levels of restriction so a restricted zone would say you're not allowed to move any birds whether they're live or bird products and everyone will have to uh, abide by strict biosecurity and quarantine rules when entering and exiting that restricted zone and then when you go into a control zone there's a bit more leniency you may be able to cull birds and take bird products out of that zone if you're not suspecting that they've got avian influenza
0: so really what we're trying to do here is to identify and isolate an outbreak to kill any infected and likely to be susceptible birds and then to stop transmission to other areas by minimizing movement of um, of birds within that zone.
1: yeah exactly and so we've got a really really good system in Australia, where a shed will actually have to apply for a permit to be able to move bird or bird products in or out of restricted and control zones uh, in order to be able to minimize that spread. On top of that, there's things like sentinel birds, as we've discussed earlier, vaccinating. And so even though vaccinating is not part of the policy here, it can be used and has been used in other countries in order to either suppress so reduce the spread and speed of spread uh, or to be used as a buffer so create a ring a buffer zone around those infected areas to sort of halt the movement of that spread and then there's targeted vaccination so that may be for someone like adjacent to a poultry farm where they've got some backyard chickens and then I've, I sort of flagged biosecurity earlier and I, I understand how biosecurity can be a little bit difficult in a backyard chicken sense, uh, but it is also really vital that biosecurity occurs from people in a backyard setting to bird shows to on-site chicken farms where they dress up in suits to ensure that the best biosecurity uh, is maintained. Between sites, so trucks are washed down to minimize any potential spread. And between countries, and uh, this is a big one because when there's such a highly vertically integrated system where birds or eggs are imported from overseas, you don't want to be sending viral material, bringing it in or taking it out of Australia. And with that comes all the trade implications where If there is an outbreak and the country reports that outbreak to the International Organization for Animal Health, the World Organization for Animal Health, other countries will sort of say, oh, we don't want to import any poultry products from this area anymore because we don't want to bring avian influenza into our country. It is bad for trade, but it's also an international obligation based on the fact that if they had it, we would be wanting to know that information too.
0: So I guess there to just clarify the difference between quarantine and biosecurity, because I think that those are two terms that have a little bit of overlap but are distinctly different from each other. Quarantine is really about identifying an outbreak and then trying to lock down an appropriate surrounding area to prevent further spread of that. And biosecurity is more about the routine measures that we do to maintain good hygiene and try to avoid importing a virus into an area where it's not currently present
1: yeah exactly
0: so I think that's just about all that we had to say about avian influenza I hope that you've enjoyed the episode and learnt a little bit about it we might just end with a quick little recap of some of the key points that we've discussed today um, so there are quite a lot of different types of avian influenza and there's a constant reservoir in the water birds in our environment Different strains can behave quite differently, and are broadly classified into highly pathogenic avian influenza and low pathogenicity avian influenza. Which, in practice, means a variety of things because the criteria in order to meet high pathogenic avian influenza um, can encompass whether or not it's a severe disease in birds or the zoonotic potential of that particular strain of the virus.
1: Yeah, and I mean we didn't even we didn't even talk about low pathogenic avian influenza because there's there's low pathogenic avian influenza ha- outbreaks that happen all the time and whilst the term sounds like it's not that big a deal i mean you can have 50% mortality in a flock in infected birds and that that's a big deal in humans you,
0: you know yeah so we say low pathogenic and high pathogenic but it doesn't really necessarily mean an awful lot in practice yeah so the major concerns for, for health and for the economy are when avian influenza gets into a poultry farm, in which case it can have a large impact on both animal welfare and an economic impact on that farm and the wider poultry industry, or when it might have zoonotic potential and mutates into a strain that infects humans. Mm. Um, if we have an outbreak, there are a few different things that we can do to try and control an outbreak. Do you want to recap some of those, Nick?
1: Yeah, so that's everything like uh, we were talking about in terms of stamping out, biosecurity, quarantine, possibly vaccinating, but that's not really performed much in Australia and having testing of those sentinel birds or birds in other flocks in the area. And and this is all stuff that we are currently doing in Victoria because even though an outbreak of 280,000 birds doesn't sound t- as like a lot compared to the fact that we've got what 19 million layer hens in australia it's still that the potential risk that we don't want to be entering
0: yeah so i guess what we're trying to say there is that avian influenza outbreaks are quite common but our approach to managing them in australia is quite robust and there's a there's a very good framework of what to do to try and prevent outbreaks and then if there's an established outbreak, what to do to try and control that and then the associated reporting obligations. Hmm. So um, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast.
1: Yeah, it was pretty full on. There's a lot of information there.
0: hope you've learned a little <laughs> bit about the flu and had a break from the other infectious disease that shall not be named that has had too much attention in the media lately Um, if you would like to give us any feedback on this episode any constructive criticism if you've got any questions maybe if you have some suggestions for future episodes you can reach us via vphpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on instagram at vphpodcast
1: yeah sweet thanks kate
0: all right thanks nick Uh, we'll see you everyone next week
1: catch you later